Hello, Sonoma. Welcome back. My guest today is Maite Ituri. She's an educator and community leader who's dedicated her life to teaching and empowering the next generation. And I can't wait to get started. Hello, Sonoma. Welcome back. I'm here with Maite Ituri. How are you doing today, Maite? I'm doing great. Is that how you pronounce your name? It is. Maite. So you're currently the assistant superintendent of Petaluma City Schools, but you were the principal of Alvarano Elementary School for 15 years. You've worked in the Sonoma Valley School District for more than 25 years. The IT regards you as one of the most innovative and hardworking educators in Sonoma Valley. But you got your start in the education field in 1993 by getting your teaching credential with a bilingual cross-cultural emphasis. So who was that Maite who set out to become a teacher in 1993? Oh my goodness, I'm so, thank you for that question. It's amazing that you asked that because I was thinking about, I was thinking about this the other day as I was kind of playing what this might be like through my head and I thought, what made you do what you do? How did you end up even considering education and in Sonoma Valley? Because I was in San Francisco for most of my life. And I think that it had, there's a couple of things that happened. And it's interesting because today's the anniversary of the Loma Prieta earthquake. And I was, we were living in San Francisco up until a few months before the earthquake hit. And the building that we lived in collapsed wow. from four stories to two. Also in that same month, my father passed away. So it was kind of a traumatic 1989. I had a brand new baby and we had moved to Sonoma and I was not sure what I was going to do. I was in the hotel and restaurant business in the city and I had left UC Berkeley I thought I was going to go to law school and I left that behind and found myself up here and these traumatic events happened. And then I walked into Sonoma State and met a man named Manuel Hidalgo. And he saw me for who I was for like the first time ever. I had an educator pay attention to who I was, what my history was, and said, hey, have you ever considered being a teacher? And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> My grandmother was a teacher. No, I hadn't considered that. And he said, I think that's the path you need to take. And that's, I ended up staying there and getting a bilingual credential. And he kind of mentored me through this whole process of becoming an educator and a leader. So I was going to ask you about this later, but talk to me about Hidalgo. How did he lead you to this path? Well, I think because my, I had, walked into his office after just having very feeling very lost you know not sure what i was going to do i d knew i didn't want to stay in the hotel and restaurant business for the rest of my life and i had the law i'd given up a an education at berkeley and i had this gift of being bilingual and i didn't really realize what a gift it was i mean up until i was about 18 years old i wanted to change my name because nobody could say it so my dad had left me this amazing gift. And after his passing, I realized just how important that gift was. And that Manuel said, you need to use the skills that you have. You need to be able to help. And my father was an undocumented immigrant as well. And that Manuel was very, he believed in providing students 
who spoke a language other than English a solid education. And so he thought that I could do that and invested a lot of time in me and kind of held my hand through the whole thing because I wasn't sure that's that was the right path. Wow. Well, let's jump back to today. We're going to get back to your past in just a little bit. But today, from my understanding, a superintendent's role is to implement the vision and policy for a district based on what the school board sets. So can you just shed a little bit more light on how these administrative positions affect what kids learn in school every day? Sure. So when I was at an elementary school level and being at a site level, the impact of what takes place at a district level has great influence on a school site. And board setting the policy, the superintendent, and the board developing the vision, and everything leads back to that. The direction that the board takes the school district is all your programs, all your decisions lead back to that. Does this match the goals of the vision of the school board? Does this match the vision of this district? Are we setting, is the pol- are we following policy? Are our practices in line with our policy? And so the importance of what we do at a district level, although it seems often like a lot of paper pushing, but it really ends up being, um, we're really supporting the school site in helping them understand the direction of the district and understanding the policies that guide that work because you need the pol- the policy process and the policy piece of any school district. It's it's your foundation. It's You have to be able to have that level of understanding when you're making decisions about what students, what their experience will be. And in a school district like Petaluma, they're very progressive and they really want the student experience to be a welcoming, progressive, restorative kind of experience with developing a sense of belonging with a high academic standard. That's pretty remarkable. And I think you're in a a good place to be that because for most of your career, you've been on the other side of the coin, first as a teacher, then as the principal of Alvarano. According to one of your colleagues, Maite was the heart and soul of Alvarano School for the past 15 years. And I want to share some of your accomplishments, of which there's a long list. You opened the district's first on-site preschool. You introduced new science and art programs, which were referenced in the Stanford Center for Opportunity Policy and Education as a program showing success in closing the opportunity gap. You organized community forums. You expanded after-school enrichment programs. You hosted the Valley Vibes Youth Orchestra. You created new parent leadership opportunities, transitioned Alvarano into the community school model, which included creating a family resource center to provide parents with mental health services, legal advice, and health resources. And in the past decade, you brought more than $7 million in grants to the school and district. So that is a lot of cool accomplishments. Congratulations. But during all of that, what was your guiding philosophy as a principal? I think it goes back to my parents. My mom always said, how can I be okay if everyone else is not okay? And I think my father's fight for justice is also a big part of follow, was a big part of the reason that I chose the path that I chose is he leaving Spain the way he did and having to come to a country that he didn't know and having to navigate in a culture and a language he didn't understand. And many of the families that I work with are in that similar situation. So being able to channel him for wanting, understanding 
what he went through and what I think he would want me to do to support others. I think that has a lot to do with with why I chose the things that I chose to support and to create really flourishing, enriching environments for people. So one thing that you've mentioned before is that you've led with love and focused on a holistic approach to our sometimes disenfranchised and marginalized communities. And you've also mentioned that though academics are critically important, it's all those other pieces that you put in place to support families that's critical to the academic success of those students. Another one of your colleagues said that Maite believes leadership should be shared and can be developed as a talent among students, teachers, and parents. Are there certain qualities you think that make a good leader? Oh, yeah. I think being, like you did your homework. Um, <laughs> um, you know, leading with love, I think that is a big part of who I am. It's, and love is not this warm and fuzzy thing. It's, it's keeping justice at the center, keeping, being able to have uncomfortable conversations, being able to encourage people to be their best. It's all of that. And I think that's what leadership is. It's, it's creating those conditions for people to flourish and for them to come and be their creative, beautiful, brilliant selves, because I believe in people. I believe in people and what they can do and what we can do together is out, is just the possibilities are limitless. But if we lead with a very heavy handed kind of way or a top down manner, our people won't flourish. They will do they will do the minimum and we can't lead with fear. You've got to lead with love and believe that people are believe that people are there for the right reasons and just create those conditions to make sure that they have that space and provide a lot of hope because right now education needs a lot of hope and a lot of inspiration and it all goes back to love i love that i love that you're able to define it in a way that's more than like you said it's not this fluffy thing it's about being respectful and really seeing the people that are in front of you you've also mentioned that you know being a good leader is building community and having high expectations for yourself and others sometimes leaders have to make decisions that others disagree with and that can be tough. How do you navigate that kind of a process? Oh, well, you know, I, it's so funny you asked that question at this time in my life right now. Um, <laughs> I think that a lot of times we have to make decisions that not everyone agrees with. But again, it goes back to the creating that space and coming. To, I really try to look for people's common interests. What are our interests in this? And how can we work on this together? And we're not all going to get what we want out of this. But hopefully we can come to enough commonalities that we can move the needle forward. And sometimes you do have to make difficult decisions that don't, that not everyone agrees with, but hopefully there's enough respect, enough mutual respect in the room and enough understanding that amongst the people, the educational partners and the families that um, they, we can come to a place that we can compromise. Sometimes not compromise necessarily our our standards or our level of excellence, but we may have to compromise on what we get out of the situation. And there are times that I don't like to have winners and losers. I like to have winners and winners, right? That we walk out of this and that we can all, we've all had our say and we can all support the decision. Albeit it may not be the decision exactly the way we wanted it to turn out, but there is some agreement that we will at least support it and try it. And then we can revisit it. 
And that follow through and that follow up and decision making is so important that there's a feedback loop within that decision making because you can't just make a decision and hope that everything is going to turn out well, right? You've got to be able to come back and examine it. And I think that's a, you have to have that safety net in and people will go along with that. It's like, okay, if we can revisit this decision in a few months after we've tried it, I'm okay with that. And coming back and checking in and making sure that things are working or they're not and what needs to be changed. So decision making is not a finite moment in time. It has to be, it has to have life. It has to be able to be revisited and changed if needed. I like that. And it sounds like over the course of your career, you've been often focused on building communities. And it's cool to see that the scale goes down to even your team is a community of leadership. And you spent a lot of your career listening, listening to students, parents, teachers, and other community members about their needs, their wants, their barriers. Um, since we're talking about schools, what do you wish adults knew about kids in school nowadays? Kids in school, since 2017, we've had a lot of trauma in our community. Sonoma County has suffered a lot of trauma. Wildfires, pandemic, ongoing wildfires. And that loss and that level of anxiety and fear is being played out in schools. Our schools mirror our community. And I think that there's a level of anxiety that people are operating under now and have been for some time. A lot of uncertainty about things. And I think that is that sometimes we need to keep things that adult conversations don't always have to be visible to children, Mm -hmm. that there's, there are some things that we need to need to manage without them being the audience. And I think their level of anxiety is mirroring what they're seeing in our communities. And I think hope and providing support for kids and their mental health right now is probably one of the most important things that we should and we should be doing. People are not well, they're just not, they need some help and they need to feel, again, I think there's just this kind of overall sense of hopelessness in a lot of ways. And, and I think, yeah, we need, we all need to be a little kinder and a little gentler with one another and provide each other with a little more space and grace. And I don't know that that's happening for everyone. And our kids are definitely picking up on it. Well, one thing that you spoke about in there is something that's consistent throughout your career, which is you're doing two things really interestingly. You're breaking down the barrier between what kids are and what adults are and what kids feel and what adults feel, but also reminding us that adults have a certain responsibility to keep kids kids. You know what I mean? And one of the things that I always remember as a kid that I loved was reading and getting diving into books. It was an escape. It was so powerful. And within the learning sphere, you've put a special focus on reading. You want all of your students to be great readers and writers because it's a skill from which all other learning springs from. I'm curious what role reading played in your life in particular. Oh my goodness. You ask very good questions. So when I was, when I started school, I was a, I was classified or if I had started school now, I would have been classified as a transitional kinder. I would have started, I started school at four years old. 
a second language and a second language learner because I grew up speaking Spanish and English. So when I was in school and I had a mother who read to us all the time. So when I was in school, I was in first grade and they said, oh, she's not reading well. Exactly. That was the look on my mother's face. And so she marched me off to a reading specialist. And I remember flipping through this blue binder and I was like, oh, I don't like this. I don't like the way this is going because it was these isolated sounds and things were very, it didn't, it wasn't these beautiful stories that I had been read, been exposed to my whole life in both languages. So it was not a, it was not a great experience. And I didn't want anyone else to have that experience. I wanted them to be surrounded with, I wanted them to have a beautiful balanced approach to reading, to be surrounded by beautiful, diverse literature, that those stories that make, expand your mind, but also making sure that people had the skill set that they needed to be able to read the words on the page, right? So it's a, it's a balance of both. So I think my experience as a child made me realize just how important it is to make sure that you're offering a wide variety and a menu of opportunities for kids to enter into reading and just how important it is because you can't do math without reading. You can't do any... You reading is one of the most important things that you can do. And I remember also as a child trying to teach my dad how to read in English. I'd pull out the books and I'd go, dad, this is this in English. And I think the guy knew a lot more English than he was leading on to. But, but yeah, so it's just that value of the written word. And he was trilingual. Right? He was multilingual. He spoke, yeah, yes, he spoke English, Spanish, French, Norwegian, and Italian. Did he speak any Basque? Oh, did I say Basque? I'm sorry. No, I not no English. Sorry. He spoke Basque, Spanish, French, Norwegian, and Italian. I love that. And that gives you such great perspective about like what's going on in someone who can't speak your language. You know what I mean? And the fact that you were, that you're so focused on reading and that you created that name for yourself. There were two kids at the high school not too long ago who noticed that they, they weren't being represented in the books that they had and they didn't know who to turn to and they turned to you. That must have been a pretty special moment. Yeah, Victoria and Lily are our leaders. They will be, they are leaders now and will be amazing leaders in this community. Yeah, they diverse books. That was one of the, it was a really important part of the work we did at Alvarado to make sure that kids were represent, they saw themselves in the literature that they were reading. And when Lily and Victoria came and said, we really want to make sure that that's happening in all schools. We, they raised some money and were able to, I think they're on their third school now getting books for teachers. So I think that's really an important and amazing, amazing work that they're doing. And I, and it's, there are other students in other communities doing similar work. So they have a network of folks they're helping them. That's pretty cool to have helped start this new network of folks getting help. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Maite on Hello Sonoma. Hello, Sonoma. Welcome back. I'm here with Maite Ituri. So we were just talking about creating a network of support and connection, and you've been praised for having, for understanding connectivity, that education doesn't happen in a vacuum. For example, you highlighted something that I hadn't thought about, that schools feed many students up to 10 meals a week for breakfast and lunch. So when the power goes out, schools can't operate, which means our students are not only missing educational time, but maybe going hungry as well. 
To that end, you started an organization in 2017 called Food for All, Comida para Todos, to help distribute food and other essential supplies throughout the community. In 2020, the organization played a tremendous role in ensuring our community was safe, healthy, and well-fed. So if you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit about the idea behind Food for All and some of what you did during the pandemic? So in 2017, it was the Springs Fire Relief Fund, and it was started by a few folks who recognized that people in our community were needing masks and air purifiers and just some basic health need, food cards, clothing. So we did that work on a minimal level because we didn't have a lot of funding. So a few years played out and then 2020, the pandemic hit. So we had kind of this structure already in place. And one of the other pieces that was huge in making the 2020 work of Food for All happen is the leadership within the school site. We had parents who had been leaders within that school community for years because I fully believe in developing parent leadership, that they are your strongest allies and your st- they because you, their children are in your school for six hours a day they want it to be the best place that it can possibly be so working with a group of parents and then this original group that had started the springs fire relief fund we all came together when we realized that the pandemic and food access was just becoming more and more of a crisis and um, most of the food food distribution sites were requiring that you drive through. And a lot of our parents and families didn't have cars and didn't have the ability to drive through a line. So some of the parents had come to me and said, do you think it would be all right if we delivered food to some of these families who can't a- access it? And I thought, yeah, let's <laughs> ha- well, great. How are we gonna do that? And they started picking up food at the Redwood Food Bank distribution sites and delivering it to families, elders and moms who couldn't get out of the house or didn't have, a lot of our families were essential workers. So essential frontline workers, and they were getting sick at a much higher rate as well. So we realized that the need was increasing. The pandemic was getting worse. It was not going away anytime soon. So then we added another layer of complexity to it. And we started providing food that was culturally relevant food. And we also realized that our families weren't, they didn't have masks. They didn't have PPE. They didn't have, they didn't have some of the things that other families had access to. And one of our founding principles was really just about dignity and humanity and justice. If families on one side of town could have food delivered, families on the other side of town should have food delivered. So we put a network of about 60 volunteers together and fundraised and it was crowdsourced at first. And then we got a few grants and we were able, we are still in still in service at this point, inflation being where it is that people still need our support. Also, we started providing 24-hour COVID boxes to people. Once you got that positive result, you were unable to, and in the early stages, you were not able to leave the house, you didn't have resources. So we were delivering food to make sure that families could stay home. And I think the founding principle of it is just dignity. We wanna provide you with dignity and, or we wanna create a space and a and a service that that is is grounded in humanity and and sees you as a human individual and you have needs and we want to be able to support that and and that's kind of the founding principle of that work it's about justice food language yeah and about people as you mentioned feeling at home in their own community knowing that there were people looking out for them knowing that they weren't be left behind so even though you said 
you can get a lot done if you don't have to worry about who gets credit for it. You did get credit for it. <laughs> you got the North Bay Spirit Award for your work, which celebrates people who make a difference in their community in the North Bay. So congratulations for your Thank you. contribution. Um, so a colleague of yours said, another colleague, there are lots of colleagues who have good things to say about you, Maite, that's a good sign, said that your capacity for seeing where the need is and for actually doing something about it is remarkable. You put it that your role is to help remove barriers for students and educators so they can be the best they can be every day. That's as your role as a principal. But of Comida Para Todos, you also said in a similar vein, we found a hole and we filled it. I'm curious how you go about finding gaps or barriers in the community and knowing when or how to fill them. I listen to people and they are willing to share their stories with me. And I think that is probably how this all comes to be because I will, I'll listen, I'll take the time, I'll hear your story. And I may not always have immediate responses. There's so many people out there that are willing to be helpful who are willing to listen to me so I can start to put pieces together. And there's an entire network of folks that I'm blessed to work with who have their ear to the ground as well. And we share what we hear. And that's how we fill those holes because we are willing to take the time to find out what's going on and not make assumptions about what people need. And make, there's a lot of assumptions made about what people need. I'll never forget a colleague of mine said, it's like peeling an onion. I can start out with one question, but not until I pull back all the layers do I get to what the actual root of a situation is. And it's being willing to take the time to, to go through that process, to figure out what people actually need. And then there's just a level of trust that happens when you're willing to listen to someone and when you're willing to not past and you don't pass judgment and you're just holding that space for them. And I think that's what it is. I mean, if I had to put it, I'll, when a teacher comes to me and says that they can't do their job or their job has become challenging because of a certain situation, we're going to work through that situation because I want you to be the best you can be in that classroom every single day. And I will do everything I can to make sure that that happens. And the same thing goes with families in our community. If there's something that they need and they've come to me or come to someone I know, we're going to do something to try to support that situation because we want them to be the best they can be. Because if we're not all healthy and well, then, you know, I mean, there are always things that happen for people, but trying to create those conditions for people to be as healthy and well as possible is yeah. important. So you mentioned listening a couple of times. I'm curious, do you feel like your listening is a skill or a gift? Is it something oh. that you've worked on or is it something that you've always had? I think that it might be a gift because I don't know that it's a skill that I like intentionally worked on. I think it's, I've always been kind of the quiet one in the room. I'm kind of the observer. And so being in a leadership role where I have to be up and talking and being in front of people is not my greatest comfort zone. But I probably have had to work on it to some degree. Um, but I think it may have been a gift. 
Well, I'm glad you're using that gift and you're using it in all kinds of different situations. Besides your role as principal and founder of Comida Para Todos, you're also involved in another long list. Sonoma County Community and Local Law Enforcement Task Force, La Luz Center, Sonoma Valley Education Foundation, Sonoma Valley Council for Youth Development in Sonoma. You're a mentor in the Stand By Me Mentoring Program. You're on the Springs Municipal Advisory Council, or the MAC, and you even helped support the Sonoma Valley Hospital. That's a lot of exciting things. How has your involvement in all these organizations informed your perspective on the Sonoma community? So in Sonoma, I think we have a lot of really well-intended people who want to help folks. There's no doubt in my mind. And that people want to be supportive of one another, but they're not exactly sure how to go about it. Because sometimes there's you're comfortable with the people you know. You're comfortable in the spaces that you're comfortable in. You may not be able to cross that bridge into another setting that you are unfamiliar with because it's uncomfortable. So I think people like me help put people on both sides of that bridge together. And I think that there are several other people in this community that help do that work as well. But it's a br- the bridge builders to try to put those put the need and the support so that we're all speaking the same language. So there's the translators who are in the room, the bridge builders and the translators. And I think the people that I'm fortunate to work with play that role in many ways. And, um, and understanding, and I think the pandemic really changed the way a lot of people looked at philanthropy and the work that's happening in Sonoma Valley. The need, the need became much more urgent much more visible and people people were looking at the way they fund things and the way they do the work differently and i think that there was more of a opportunity people were more willing to listen to what the needs were because the urgency became i was like splitting open i mean it's the whole everybody's world had shattered all at the same time and everybody had that shared experience so having the opportunity to put I think that's the role and that's the perspective that I have is that there's there needs to be somebody who helps helps the folks who are wanting to be involved communicate and help translate some of that that need and that desire. It's funny that you mentioned translation because that's something that you've also been involved with a lot. As a chairperson for the Springs MAC, which is also all about connecting people and their desires and what can be done, you've insisted on inclusivity and accessibility. First of all, there are lots of Macs in our district, but ours is fully bilingual all the time. And even your very first meeting was a conversation on racism in June of 2020, I think. Yeah. Uh, why was it important for you to address these issues in our community? It goes back to being inclusive and justice. And there are, that was a very explosive time in the pandemic. George Floyd, we had had lots of tragic, tragic events happening in our world. And and they, they're happening here. And being able to talk about it and being bringing people's awareness to it, awareness is the first step of being able to heal and being able to work through some of those situations. And I'm, it was important to me that we shined a light on some of the things that were happening, particularly in the Springs community that need addressing, and they still do. That conversation did not, it, it brought things to light that people were experiencing. And then we had students who were partic- who also came to 
our Mac and told us about their experiences too. So there are, and there are many, many, many more stories out there, but it's now it's on us to do something about it. It's on us to make those changes. What are the structural things that we're gonna change within our community that provides more access and more accessibility and more equity for the, our community members? We've been told what's happening and very clearly. Where do you think your desire to be inclusive came from? I have a guess, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. I think it, again, I think it goes back to my family and my dad not being a, an English speaker and being different. I was always different. I was always different. And I didn't always feel like I fit in. And why did my family speak this language? And so, and not being seen. And I don't want other people to feel that way. Wow, that's powerful. Well, when I spoke to some of your colleagues and friends, and many of them said you were inspirational and someone they look up to, in part because of your desire to keep everyone included and maybe leading with love and believing in people. So who do you admire, either locally or on the world stage? There are so many people on that list, I don't know that I could. Here I can reform the question. What are some of the qualities that you admire in people, um, wherever they are? And maybe there are people who remind you of those qualities. Yeah, I, people who speak their truth are, that's pretty high on my list. People who are authentic, people who are willing to risk something Leaders who include people, leaders who, who are not going to go with the most popular voice in the room just because of their status or their, how loud they are or whatever that may be, that they have, they're willing to, to create more space for others. Um, people who are willing to take responsibility and step into an arena where you may not come out smelling like a rose, right? And people who hold themselves accountable to their work and they follow through and they inspire others and they can start a movement. And people who see the good in others because there's a lot of people who see the bad. I like that list. And the last thing while we're talking about this before we go to one more break is that I mentioned, I, I mean, there was a long list of stuff that you did, you accomplished as principal, a long list of other organizations that you're involved with. What drives you? Where do you get all this energy? I've, I'm asked that quite a bit. And I, I think it goes, well, sometimes you make bad choices in your life, yeah. right? And sometimes you want to make sure that you are remembered and you do everything you can for the good of folks. And I wanna make sure that I'm doing everything I can in my, I'm just, I have a lot of, I sit in a place of privilege. I'm really fortunate. I had, I've made some bad mistakes making it in this world. But I was really lucky. 
And I think everybody deserves that. I think everybody deserves that opportunity. And anything I can do to make sure that others have a chance, I'll do. I love it. Well, we're going to have to take a quick break. We'll be right back with my tip. All right. Hello, Sonoma. We're back with Maite Turi. So let's go back to the beginning. You were born and raised in San Francisco in an immigrant, bilingual, and bicultural home. Your father, who we've mentioned before, was from Spain, from Basque country specifically, and you had a family restaurant. Tell us about where you grew up. Oh, I grew up in the best place possible. I grew up in North Beach in San Francisco, and we had a Basque restaurant on Broadway. My mom is is an American and bilingual and she married my dad they met on the same block where we had our restaurant and i grew up in the restaurant business and went to went all through school in san francisco and um it was a great place to grow up the language the culture the the exposure to people and their different lifestyles and and who they and just being with people and accepting them for who they were and not having it didn't, I mean, one of my best friends was Chinese and her parents spoke to me in Mandarin every time I walked through the door. And I'm like, I don't know what they're saying to me. I think it has something to do with food. And then the same thing would happen to them when they'd come to my house. My dad would speak to them in Spanish. My girlfriend's name was Pam and my dad could never get it right. He called her pink all the time. So, um, so I think it's, I think that has a lot to do with who I am because there was just a nonstop exposure to people from different places that allowed me to to understand that I'm this is not how everybody looks this is not how everybody speaks there's a wide variety out of there out there and the high school I went to was was as diverse as but just very diverse very um maybe not quite as inclusive but a very diverse place and um so I, th- I think that background that I have of being in that community was, yeah, pretty special. So we mentioned your dad being Basque. For those who don't know, the Basque country kind of borders between France and Spain. Mm-hmm. It's right over there. It's a super unique language. No relations in Europe. It's exactly. like it's like the outcasts of Europe. It is. Had to come to California because Spanish dictator Franco was like, you can't speak anything other than Spanish. So, I mean, this is the classic immigrant story. Your mother, what's what's her story? My mom was from Missouri, a small town, a small town in Missouri, like 500 people. And I think that she wanted something different than growing up in a small town and came to California and in, ended up in San Francisco. And my dad worked in a restaurant and they met there. And my mom had picked up Spanish somewhere along the way. So she was able to communicate with my dad. But yeah, and she was very, I remember she would take us to protests every once in a while. So they were both very politically active. And I think that's probably what drew them to each other. So it's one of the things that drew them to each other. But yeah. Are there any lessons that you can remember that your parents taught you that kind of really stick with you until now? Well, I credit my dad with um, teaching me about what a family resource center is because he in his restaurant would people would come from 
the Basque Country or Spain or and, or his connections, and he'd help them find a job. He'd help them find a place to live. He'd connect them with people in the community. So that he did a lot of that work, and and I watched that all growing up. Is that people? You help people. You help people in need. You help each other, and I think that's one of the things that really stuck with me throughout the years. So your parents taught you some good stuff and you also went to school in a lot of different places. You received your undergraduate and master's degrees in educational leadership from Sonoma State University. Your master's thesis was about parent participation in the Latino community. Sounds pretty familiar. And you're now working towards, or maybe have gotten, I'm not sure, your doctorate UC Davis in educational leadership with a focus on community and school leadership. Yes. So that's been a long time coming. I actually, the chair of my dissertation called me the other day and said, so you're one of the last three of my, I'm headed towards retirement. So, um, so we are working on the details on how to make, how to make that happen and how to finish that. But it's, it's one of the things that's undone in my life. And I look back at the work at Alvarado and I think the reason I didn't finish that work or I didn't is because I was busy working to make Alvarano and create the space there for people, for that community. And that's not a, like, I chose this over this and I'm, are there any regrets? It's just, that's where my energy was going and that's where my time was being spent because that's where I wanted it to spend it. And this is still something I want to accomplish so we'll see. There's time. There's time. So given your educational background here, what role would you say that education has played in your life? I wouldn't be here without it. I wouldn't have, if it hadn't been for the opportunities that I had to be able to go to school, to be able to work in, in education, I wouldn't, I, this is not where I would be. Um, so it is... It, it changed my life. It was trans, it was transformative and being, and stepping from a teacher role into, I was always try always looked for leadership opportunities when I was a classroom teacher, but stepping out of the classroom and into a leadership role at a site level, and then using that platform to support the community. That's what was transformative. That's amazing. And so during this process and during your time as principal and administrator, you've interacted with a lot of teachers. But who are some of the teachers that you looked up to that you remember? From my, I would, my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Wallow. She was amazing. She, uh, she read to us all the time. I remember that. I also had a fifth grade teacher that was really important to me. And then I've had some not so great teachers and I learned a lot from them as well. So I wanted to make sure there were a couple of really not great experiences and I wanted to be sure that didn't help them for others. It's funny how that happens. Mm -hmm. uh, what were some of the, what, what made them good teachers? So your kindergarten teacher who read to you, your fifth grade teacher, what made them special? I think it was, it goes back to that sense of belonging and, and seeing who you are taking that extra time to know who you are. I mean, I'm not, ex I, Mrs. Wallow, she read to us. And to me, that was the best thing on the planet. I think my fifth grade teacher, she was, 
she was cool and she cared about us. And there was just something about her that made me say, okay, she does, she cares. That's powerful. Well, we mentioned before that you were a teacher yourself and you held bilingual positions in Napa and classrooms at Sonoma Valley High, Altamira, Miller School, and Flowery Elementary. You've been credited with helping to start Sonoma's first dual immersion program at Flowery, which is a big deal. And correct me if I'm wrong, you're still an adjunct professor at Sonoma State where you coach students in the administrative credentials program. In other words, uh, up and coming principals. Plus, you mentor two students, one who's 18 and one who's 26. I asked earlier about your philosophy as a principal. Do you have a teaching philosophy? Relationships matter. Content happens when relationships are strong. And I think that's, and I didn't learn that until I left the classroom. So I was, I was a good teacher, but I was a better administrator because I understood how important relationships were. And um, had I understood that better when I was in the classroom, I probably would have been a better classroom teacher. That's so funny that you mentioned that because I wanted to ask you what advice you would give to young teachers just starting their career. Be able to reflect, be open to feedback. I read a book once about, I can't remember the title of it, something feedback. And I thought, oh, I'm gonna learn how to give great feedback. No, it was about accepting feedback. (laughs) So being able to reflect, take feedback, build relationships, be open. Those are all pretty great qualities. And another thing that you've said before is helping others by believing in them is helping our greater good, which how powerful is it to have someone believe in you, right? Yeah, and I think it goes back to where we started this conversation with Manuel. If he hadn't believed in me, I would not be here. It's funny that you mentioned that. So we started this conversation by asking who Maite was that set off on this teaching journey in 1993. And I'm wondering if you could go back in time, what would the 2022, almost 2023 Maite, tell that early version of yourself? To not take myself so seriously and be more present in the moment. I think those would be two things that I would probably tell myself. Why those two things? Because I was always, because I took myself too seriously. I thought I was going to change the world. And, um, and the bad about being present is sometimes I overlooked amazing things that were happening because I was too focused on what was going to happen next. So that's huge. I think those would be the two things. Wow. Well, I'm so glad that I could be present here for this conversation, Maite. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. And thank you for making it so easy. <laughs> Till next time. Thank you so much, Maite, for sitting down and talking with me, and thanks to all of you for listening. I certainly learned a lot about the challenges of the educational field and about this inimitable community leader. Though we've reached the end of this episode, remember, it's not goodbye, it's Hello Sonoma.